All right, well, we made it. This is the last Sunday before Pastor Joel returns from his sabbatical. Uh, and I wanted to take this just as an opportunity to share with you about something that's been on my mind for, I don't know, the last maybe year or two. And I'll warn you, uh, okay, so this is sort of my disclaimer. This is in process here, okay? I haven't totally finished thinking through all of this. But I thought it was a good time to share it with you because, you know, if you don't like it and it goes poorly, Joel's back next week anyway. So this is, this is my chance. Uh, the message this morning is a sort of early draft of what I would call a theology of status and identity. Uh, and this has grown out of two things over the past couple years. First, uh, as I look around, our culture, our society is obsessed and it seems to me deeply confused about identity. Everywhere you look, everywhere you listen, you'll find the language of status and identity and you'll be lucky if you can hear two people using either of those words in the same way from one day to the next. The second thing that sort of spawned all this uh, is a small but powerful section in a book called Old Testament Theology for Christians by John Walton. Now, I don't get any kickbacks here if you buy this. It's just a great book. Uh, and so as I was reading through this book a few years ago, I, I read through a section not at all addressing our culture. In fact, as it says, uh, it's just trying to explain how Old Testament theology is still relevant and powerful for us today. Uh, but I came across a part in there where he talks about uh, status and identity, specifically in relationship to Israel. And man, I just think there is a powerful message in there that many today urgently need. Uh, and so this message kind of grew out of trying to put those two things together. And so I'd like to take a run at articulating it. What I'd like us to do is to explore what God's word says about our status and identity and how that might offer, I think, a powerful word of hope to many inside the church and out. All right, so first, some definitions. What do I mean by status and identity? Well, this is where I'm borrowing explicitly from John Walton's book, uh, because he has a framework that I think is both very clear and very helpful in seeing the difference between those two important concepts. By status this morning, I mean simply the way other people see you. It's something, status is something that is earned or acquired or conferred by others. So examples of status are being a pastor or a teacher or a doctor, fill in the blank. Uh, these are all observable, you'll find, by outward markers. So things like degrees or titles or even clothing. And they all come with certain expectations. So status influences what other people expect from you. Uh, you work hard, for example, to earn the status of a doctor, and ultimately that status is conferred upon you by a board or a university. Uh, and once you acquire it, uh, that will give you certain outward markers. So again, you, you'll have a degree, you'll have, you know, if you're a doctor, you get a, you know, one of those special white lab coats so that people will know, uh, they will literally allow you to put doctor before your name. That's a pretty explicit outward marker. And I think as we all know, those come with certain outward expectations attached to them. Uh, that's what I mean this morning by status. By identity, I mean the way you see yourself. The way you see yourself. Identity then is not defined by outward markers, it's revealed by behavior. 
It's revealed by behavior. So identity, your identity, your concept of yourself determines what you are willing, able, or inclined to do. Uh, so for example, there are some of you here who would consider as part of your identity that you are a member of a church, uh, or an empty nester, or a friend. And if you identify, for example, as a church member, that means, probably, that you are someone who attends church, that you serve at church, and probably that you give financially to support your church. It's your identity that drives and informs that behavior. Uh, that also means, and this is important, it means that we have a role in constructing our identity. Uh, we can decide, for example, uh, that we want to be good neighbors. We can make that decision. We can say, I want that to be part of my identity, of how I see myself. And so what you'll do is you'll then go about in your life doing neighborly things, nice things for the people who live around you. And the more we behave in ways that reinforces that identity, the easier it is, the more natural it is for us to think of ourselves that way. That's identity. Uh, just as an example, years ago when my girls were little, before they were in school, it was part of our weekly routine that I would take them uh, to get the groceries at Aldi every Monday on my day off. Uh, and I have to say, just sort of as an aside, one of the things I learned by doing this is that uh, there are still some lingering double standards for mothers and fathers, if you're not aware of this. You know, my wife, if she showed up at the grocery store with the girls looking how they looked when they came with me, you know, mismatched clothing they picked out themselves, wild hair, maybe missing a shoe or three, you know, immediately you can just watch people looking at each other sideways, kind of whispering, like, hope she's okay. You know, I show up with my kids, you know, in real life, dressed like that, wild hair, missing shoes, and people were literally walking up to me going, are you here alone? I say, yeah, as a, as a matter of fact, I am. Well, I think that's just wonderful. I love seeing a dad getting the groceries with his kids. I just think it's great that you're able to do that. Now, I'm going to take any compliment that's offered. I'll just state that at the beginning, although I do wish some of them had sounded a little less surprised. You know, you're always tempted to say, like, yeah, I, I'm their parent, and I, I've purchased groceries before, you know. Uh, you know, so there's, there's a little bit of a double standard there. But what they put their finger on is exactly what I, what I was after. The reason I was there, I mean, yes, I wanted to be helpful, contribute to the household. I genuinely enjoyed doing things with my girls. But I was there, I was doing that because I wanted to think of myself as the kind of dad who did those things. I wanted that to be part of my identity, and so that's what I did. It informed my behavior. Uh, I wanted to be thought of as that kind of dad, and so I let that drive the things that I did. And I wanted other people to think of me that way when they saw me. That's identity. All right, now that we've got those two categories, status, uh, how others see you, and identity, how you see yourself, we can ask the first big question I'd like to address today, which is, who does God say that you are? And if you're a believer, if you think that this is God's word, that ought to be really important to you. Who does God say that you are? What status has he given to you? And once you ask that question, I think you'll find, as I have over the past couple years, that an enormous amount of scripture speaks to this question, either directly or indirectly. I mean, this could easily be a long sermon series all by itself. 
Uh, but I, this morning, I just want to touch on a couple of them and provide a brief overview, just give you an idea. So, good place to start, page one of Scripture. Genesis chapter one, verse 27. Here we come in at the climax of the creation narrative. It's really the first mention of humanity in Scripture. And we read this. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Page one of Scripture. And who does God say that we are? We are his image bearers. We are the bearers of his image. God has created us, all of us, all humans, in his image, and he has tasked us with governing creation in partnership and submission to him. We've been given a status, explicitly, above the rest of creation, but beneath God. And notice, just for the record, this phrase itself invokes a sort of external marker, doesn't it? Uh, We are made in his image, in his likeness. Uh, the, the very way we were created indicates our status. Now, for those of you who have been Christians for a long time, this is likely not a new idea, but I would like you to consider this this morning. I just can't help it. In the cultures surrounding Israel, you know, Babylon, Egypt, Assyria, the Chaldeans, the Persians, they also uh, had an idea of humans as bearing the image of the divine, but for them, there was one human who bore the image of a god, and that was the king. That's what made them the king. So I want you to consider for a moment how radical it was, how radical it maybe still is, that the god of Israel would say on page one, no, 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 no. Everyone, every single person, male and female, I have made in my image. Every single one of you bears the image of of God. Right there on the first page, God tells us who we are. We are the bearers of his image. That's the status God has given you. Next, let's jump to the New Testament. Sorry, I told you we're moving quickly here. 1 John chapter 3. Now here, John is specifically addressing believers, not all humanity. Uh, He reminds them, in fact, I would say he celebrates the status that God has conferred upon us as the followers of Jesus. I love this verse. 1 John 3, 1, he says, See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. And so we are. What does God say? Who does God say we are? If you are in Christ, God says that you are his child. You're his family. Now, that's a status none of us could have ever earned or acquired on our own. God, in his grace, just gives it to us. He offers it freely. It's a spectacular act of grace. But what's even more incredible, John says, is that he has also made it reality. He didn't just call us his children. We are his children. Uh, He didn't just look at you, okay? God doesn't just look at you and say, you're like a son to me. You are. You're you're like a son to me. He didn't just look at you and say, you, you're like a daughter to me. John says, no, don't forget, God in Christ laid down his life to redeem you, to purchase you, and to adopt you. 
When God says he is your child, he doesn't say it flippantly or lightly. He paid a very high price so that when he looks at you and says, you are my son, you are my daughter, it would be the truth. Who does God say that you are? You are his child. That's the status he's given you. The last one I want to touch on quickly this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Here again, Peter is writing to the church, to believers, and he brings out a whole list. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who brought you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. You remember how I told you a few minutes ago that once you started thinking in terms of status and identity, you were going to start to see it everywhere in Scripture? Well, here you go. I, I could have maybe done the whole message right here out of this verse. This is all status and identity language. Peter, again, speaking to believers, says to them, uh, this is who God says you are. God says that you are a chosen people because he chose you, that you're a holy nation because God set you apart for him and for his purposes. God says that you are a royal priesthood and his special possession. Listen, everything, all creation is God's. He made it and it's his, but you are his special possession. Now, again, we could spend a lot of time unpacking all of these, uh, but this morning I want to propose that behind all of these, uniting them, is the status of holiness. God says that you are holy. That all those who accept Jesus, this is what holiness means, all those who accept Jesus are set apart for God and for his purposes. And part of that purpose, Peter says, is to be a royal priesthood. Uh, and what does that mean? Well, to be a priest means that you represent God before the world and you intercede for the world before God. We are called to be a royal priesthood. Peter says that God put his finger on you and he chose you. He set you apart for that purpose and for that calling. You are his special possession. At the risk of repeating myself and the obvious, let me just say this too is a status that none of us could have ever earned or acquired. But God gives it to you. He confers it upon you. God has called you holy, and so you are. By the way, I don't have time to, I'd love to spend like another hour on this, so you know, community groups are starting up, invite me to your community group, I'd love to talk about it. Uh, just, this is, this is just like a promotion. But this helps explain how God can both say, declare that Israel is holy, and yet also look at Israel and say, hey, you need to be holy. He is giving them the status, but then he is telling them to accept that status and to make it their identity, all right? God gives them the status of holiness. So who does God say that we are? Let me just say, let me bring it all together here. God says the status God gives you is that you are the bearer of his image, you are his children, and you are holy. And you're more besides. But the question now, and not to put too fine a point on it, uh, but this is a question that will shape your entire identity and the rest of your life, and it's not an exaggeration. The question now for you is, do you believe him? This is who God says you are, but do you believe him? 
Will you let God rewrite your identity? Will you let him rewrite the way that you see yourself? Will you do the hard work of choosing to see yourself as God sees you? Listen, as we've just seen, God wants to give you, he has given you a status that is far above anything any of us might have earned or acquired. And what God asks in return, what he has always asked of his people, is that we would adopt that status as our identity. That we would allow his declaration of who we are to fundamentally rewrite our own understanding of who we are. He wants us to rebuild our identity and our life around the status that he has given us. And the question, this, I think, that we should ask is, okay, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, I have two suggestions this morning, two steps in this process. First, just simply, you have to choose to put God's words at the center of your identity You have to choose to adopt the status he has given you as your identity. Here's how I think of it. You know, we are all, uh, we all have layers to our identity, many layers. You know, you could think of an onion, you can think of concentric circles, whatever picture is more helpful for you. Uh, For example, I'll share a little bit about me. I think of myself as a husband and father, as a Buckeyes fan, and as a learner, among other things. All of those and more work together to make up my understanding of who I am. But here's the important part. They are not all equally important to my identity. And the order matters. Some things are more important than others. They're more central than others. Being Heidi's husband is close to the center of who I am. Almost everything else in my identity and life is layered on top of that. Uh, If that were to change... It would fundamentally change the way that I understand myself. It would change it at a deep level. Now, listen, I love me some Ohio State Buckeyes, okay? I just do. Uh, And if their football program got shut down next week, I would be very sad. All right, I'd I'd be devastated. I'll just admit I'd be devastated. Uh, It's the truth. My wife would be the first to confirm that. But that would not change my understanding of who I am. It doesn't change my identity. Now, it's part of it, most certainly. It's out there in the outer rings. It's in the periphery. It's part of the picture. But it's not near the center. Think of it this way. There is a difference between a painter that goes to church and a follower of Jesus who paints. There's a difference between a pickleball player who follows Jesus and a follower of Jesus who plays pickleball. If you want a biblical example of what this first step looks like, you can't do any better than the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Uh, Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, and he says, listen, if anyone has any reason to put confidence in the flesh, I do. I'm a Jew of Jews, circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, of the people of God, as to the law of Pharisee. You know what all that is? That's all status and identity language. That's Paul's identity. That's his conception of himself before he meets Jesus. But then Paul says to the Philippians, then I did meet Jesus. And now I consider all that stuff garbage by comparison. What he's done 
is he has taken all the things that were at the center of his identity and he has pushed them to the outside. And he has written something else there in its place to know Jesus and to be found in him. Paul says, you want to know who I am now? That's who I am. Is Paul still a Jew? Absolutely. He'd be happy. He, he does tell you that. Does he still care about the law, God's good gift to his people? Absolutely. Is he still of the tribe of Benjamin? Yes. It's just not at the center of his identity. He has, he has allowed God, he has chosen to see himself as God now sees him in Christ. That's the first step. The first step to adopting the status God has given us as our identity is to choose it, to choose to do it, to put those words at the center of our identity and our life. The second step is then to start behaving in a way that reinforces that choice. To ask ourselves, okay, well, how then should I live if this is who I am? How should I live if I'm a bearer of God's image, if I'm his child? How should I behave if I am a member of a holy nation and a royal priesthood? I remember earlier when I talked about choosing to be a good neighbor. It's like that. Okay, if I want to think of myself as a good neighbor, what does a good neighbor do? That's part of how we drive it home by asking ourselves, if we are who God says we are, then, then how, how now should we live in our context and in our time? Before I close... I want to spend a minute and just acknowledge something because this is part of what brought all this up for me. The fact is that right now, there are a lot of people clamoring for us to put other things at the center of our identity. Some people right now are telling you that you should put race at the center of your identity, uh, that that should be central to who you are and how you think of yourself. Other people are telling you to put your political allegiances at the center of your identity. That you should think of yourself first and foremost in terms of what party you support and who you vote for. Uh, still other people are choosing to build their identity and their life around uh, their sexual identity. They are defining themselves fundamentally according to who they are attracted to. And listen... I know that there are some people who are going to look at that and go, yeah, okay, what's the big problem? I mean, as long as Jesus is in there somewhere, what does it matter if he's in the center or one layer, two layers out? What's the big deal? Well, I just want to say briefly, it is a big deal. For starters, as Christians, if we put something else at the center, we lose unity. If we put race or politics at the center, I can tell you what's going to happen because it's already happened. We will divide ourselves according to race and politics because we've already decided, well, that's more important. It's more central to who we are than who we are in Jesus Christ. But here's the really cool thing. If you put who we are in Christ at the center, you can hold on to those other things. They can still be part of your identity just as they were for Paul. But we can still, we can come together to worship and to serve and to pray together because we can look at each other and say, hey, we're different. That's just the truth. Uh, we have different political affiliations, but at the most fundamental level, at the most important level, we are who God says we are. Amen. If we put something else at the center, we lose our sense of value and worth. Now listen, I know people outside the church are going to disagree with me, but I'm sorry. 
I'm yet to find the thing uh, that if you, if you push out image bearer of God and child of God, I'm yet to find the thing you can replace them with that is going to give the same value and dignity to human beings. There just, there isn't anything else. If you push those things out of the center, you are choosing to see yourself as of less value than the value God has given you, not just in how he created you, but in the fact that he laid down his life to purchase you. If you push those things out, you will see yourself and others as less than God sees you. And a final thing. This is the thing I keep circling back to as I thought through this this week, and it's, it's, a, it's a simple thing. Friends, God designed us. He, he made us. He knit us together in our mother's womb. And I just think, if we're going to live in defiance of his, destruction, of his instructions, it never works out very well. You know, we have like all scripture and all human history to, to show that to us. If you leave church today and you drive down the streets and you stop for gas somewhere, if it's a gas station that's been renovated in like the last 20 years, every pump is going to have two nozzles, all right? One for unleaded fuel and one for diesel. Uh, and if you're not absent-minded, you may not know that only one of those is going to fit in your car's gas tank, okay? The diesel nozzle is larger. And the reason for that is that it's, it's a really bad idea to put diesel fuel in your car that takes unleaded. Uh, and, and again, there's, there's a very simple reason for that, and it is that there is a team of people who designed the internal combustion engine in your car. And it's, you know... It's an incredible thing, really, if you ever open it up and look at it. Hundreds of pieces, maybe thousands of pieces, all carefully designed, carefully manufactured, working together with great precision and very low tolerance. And it's an incredible thing. You can put one gallon of petroleum in there, and it will take you and your whole family 30 miles at a very high speed. It's amazing. It's incredibly reliable. It's, it's, it's a meticulously designed perfectly manufactured thing. But it was designed and manufactured to run on unleaded fuel. And if you put diesel in, it's not going to work so well. Now, there might be some of you here who are, you know, you're rebellious at heart. And you say, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is my car. I bought this car. It's my engine. If I want to put diesel in it, I'm going to put diesel in it. And I'm sure the team that designed it would say, well, Okay, you're right. It is your car. It's your engine. And if you want to put diesel in it, go ahead and put diesel in it. We're just telling you that if you do it, it's not going to run so well. Oh, maybe at first it'll turn on and turn over. But eventually, before very long, you're going to encounter major problems. And eventually, it's just going to stop working altogether. God designed you. God did. And he made you. And you are a marvelous creation. An engine's amazing, but it's nothing compared to the human body. He designed you. He designed me. He designed all human beings to live with his truth at the center of our identity and the center of our lives. But listen, it's your life. And if you want to put, if you really want to put something else at the center, you can, but it's like putting diesel in your car. Eventually, you're going to malfunction, you're going to break down, and you're going to fail. 
We'll stray into arrogance and a bloated self-importance. We'll stray into sin, into behavior that harms ourselves and harms other people. Only, only when we adopt the status that God has given us as our identity, only when we build our lives around his truth, will we flourish as he intended. It's, it's simple. He designed us, and this is how we were designed to live. So build your identity and build your life around his truth. You are the bearers of his image. You are his children, and you are holy. Adopt that as your identity. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Lord, it's, it's been a strange week for me because in some ways I am re-examining truths that I have been familiar with my whole life, and that's a blessing. Uh, but it's also a little bit dangerous because you become so used to hearing it that it loses its power and we stop forgetting exactly what it means. That we are created in your image. That we are your children, that you adopted us and called us your own. That we are holy. We are set apart. We are your special possession. God, I pray that this week, this day, you would impress those truths upon our hearts. That you would write them upon our heart. And Lord, help us to push out everything else that tries to make its way in there. There are a lot of people who have a lot of ideas about what else should be at the center of our life and identity, but the bottom line is they didn't design us, they didn't create us, you did. Help us, Father, to put your truth at the center of our identity and life. And then, Lord, help us to, to live out of that truth, to behave as your people should behave. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.